Welcome to the Jack Weston MCAT Podcast with your host, Phil Hawkins. And Asai Calderon-Muñiz. Hey, Asai. Did you know that there are things that can cause disease called viruses? <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! There are. And today we're going to talk about them. Like, uh, I I think if you got to the point where you're at now and you'd never heard of a virus, honestly, if you're just a human in the realm of like, you know, COVID, post-COVID stuff, and you haven't heard of viruses, then you've been living under a rock. But viruses are actually kind of weird, like super interesting. And there's different types of viruses. And all of this stuff is very testable on the MCAT. Um, like note that like the passages you see on test day, like the AMC doesn't like pay people to write scientific journal articles just so they can put on the MCAT. They are put onto like their, their real research articles that are published in other sources. And so it's, it's very common that people will see passages on test day, especially on the really highly researched viruses. So I feel like there's a lot of passages I've seen from the AMC on um, like HIV, and like other like viruses, herpes, um, the varicella virus. Um, I honestly think that there's going to be a huge increase in um, articles about coronaviruses in the next like 10, 15 years, because there's a lot of research going on on those right now. Um, but we should probably like stop and just like take stock, like zoom out for a second, like what is a virus? Because I think that that is actually kind of poorly understood by a lot of people. Um, the, I feel like the most interesting thing about viruses is that they're not alive. Viruses are not organisms. They're not living things. They're generally just packets of genetic codes. Um, so they don't have a metabolism. They don't produce energy. They don't, they can't technically replicate themselves, but they can infect your cells and hijack your machinery and your metabolism and all of the things that you have because your cells are alive and can hijack that to replicate just those little packets of genetic code, which could be either DNA or RNA. Yeah, there's so much to viruses that is testable. And then there will be some things that are beyond the scope of what the MCAT will expect you to know. That said, this is one of those topics and categories where the passage itself might give you information about a specific virus that you will then have to use to answer questions, right? So we're giving you some of the framework. Um, make sure that you go ahead and do a little bit more in-depth reading and preparation, as always. Um, but we'll just go ahead and get started. So like Phil, like you mentioned, Phil, viruses are not alive right? They're not living. And like you said, they're basically just some genetic information. So how do we actually get infected, right? <laughs> how do they cause us so many problems and everything from, you know, like you said, chicken pox, the, the cold, um, corona, you know, the coronavirus families, because it's not just the one coronavirus. Mm -hmm. um, so when, when the virus first infects someone um, or infects an organism, it's going to make one of two decision, so to speak. And that's going to be whether it's going to enter what's called the lytic cycle or the lysogenic cycle. So to start us off first with the lytic cycle. So what is the lytic cycle? The lytic cycle is essentially an active version of the, the virus's life, you know, lifespan's um, cycle. I don't want to say cell cycle because it's not a cell. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I had to catch myself there. Um, so essentially this is the I'm, I am going to infect you. You will get sick right away. 
and then we will go off and do our own thing once your body is done fighting me. Um, so with this, with this little cyclic cycle, there are a couple of steps, right? First, remember, this is just a uh, virus with some proteins around the genetic information. It needs to make it into the actual cell. So it's going to be the first thing. So this virus is going to attach itself to whatever cell it is infecting. If it's a bacteria, if it is a, a bacterium, if it is, you know, one of our, our own human cells. And so once it attaches to that cell, it's actually then going to penetrate the cell, right? Because if you think about it, our cells, they have their own protective coatings. They have, you know, the membrane. Um, and so the, the viral, um, the, the virus is going to penetrate the cell and then it's actually going to release its genetic information into the cell, right? So the way that it's going to make its way into the cell depends on how the virus is packaged. So some viruses will have a, um, a plasma membrane right around it that allows it to fuse very easily with the, the cell that it's infecting, some won't. So once it does, whichever way it, it goes in, whether it's endocytosis, whether it's you know, transmembrane transport, um, once, it's makes, once it makes its way into the cell, right? that genetic information is inside the cell. Like you mentioned, Phil, it's going to hijack the, the cell's own proteins, the cell's own machinery. And so remember, viruses can't really do anything themselves. <laughs> they're, mm -hmm. they're very independent on the host um, that they ultimately infect. And so once it hijacks that machinery, it's going to take the genetic sequence. Like you said, it could be DNA, it can be RNA. Um, it could make, you know, it, the RNA could be converted back to DNA. It really depends on the specific virus. There are so many different types, which is why you should totally go and read about them before taking the MCAT. Um, so the, the, it's hijacks machinery. It's going to produce proteins, right? It's going to replicate its genome. It's going to, uh, produce proteins. And then eventually once it has all of the parts that it needs, it's actually going to assemble those parts into basically another it's, it's progeny. Um, and so it's going to have, you're going to produce more viruses. Once enough of these viruses are actually produced, then the cell dies, right? It's going to actually lice the cell. Um, the virus is in a sense, like a parasite, right? Um, and so it will come, it's reproduction, it's um, propagation, it being able to increase and um, multiply and infect other cells depends on actually being able to hijack and kill the original cell that it infected. Yeah, so, this is, I feel like this is what most people think of when they think of viruses, like it infects a cell, amplifies, kills the cell, and then just spills out more viruses um, kind of all over the place. Yeah. And if you think about it, this is probably some of the, the most annoying viruses, right? Like the common cold, the, the flu, which, you know, you get vaccinated against every, every year, hopefully. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, these, these cells or these cells, excuse me, these viruses enter the lytic phase. They enter the lytic cycle. That's why you get sick so quickly. That's why they don't really stick around. Once you get sick, you're sick and that's it. Um, you mm -hmm. get better right? And that's it. Um, you can get sick eventually again with a different version or, you know, in the future, but it's not that it sticks around. Yeah. I feel like there's a couple of like really interesting things like that idea that it doesn't like it, like your cells start to get infected and like your cells die and spill out more viruses. Eventually your immune system catches on and it's like, okay, like, let me learn to fight this. And there's lots of different ways that 
your body fights off viruses, things like interferon, which just messes with viruses in general, um, or also like your natural killer cells, which will go in and like if a cell gets infected by a virus, your natural killer, which can just kill that cell. Um, super interesting as a way to kind of fight those. Plus, that's like the coolest name for any cell ever, the natural killer cell. Um I, you did mention that like there's a whole bunch of viruses and generally I feel like the MCAT doesn't expect you to know a ton about a different viruses and like a bunch of details. Um, some viruses do have a DNA genome and some have an RNA based genome. And just because you mentioned this, and I know the AAMC has tested this and expected students to know this, you do need to know that HIV specifically yep is an RNA-based virus, and it's a called a retrovirus, where it turns your RNA, or the virus turns its RNA into DNA. DNA is way more stable, and your cells know how to make messenger RNA off of DNA because it hijacks your machinery. And like, so that's just something to lock away in the back of your head, that retroviruses, um, that HIV is specifically a retrovirus, and it is an RNA-based genome. Um, note that reverse transcriptase, which is also a, like a protein that we use for a whole bunch of different stuff. That's actually something that turns RNA into DNA. That's actually from viruses. That protein is a viral protein that we use in research all the freaking time. Um, and it's like a super, super useful thing kind of overall. Yeah. Super quickly. So like, and I'm, I'm glad that you pointed this out. You do not need to know specific viruses, right? Except for just some of the, the big ones, like I mentioned, like HIV. Um, what you do need to know, right, is this idea of DNA versus RNA, single-stranded versus double-stranded, lytic versus lysogenic cycle. So there are some things that you do need to know in general about viruses, not yeah. the specifics of individual viruses, just to be right. very clear. Yeah, exactly. Like you do need to know about HIV a little bit because it's particularly interesting. The MCAT has tested that. But you also do need to know the difference between a lytic and a lysogenic virus. So we've been talking about the lytic virus. And this is the classic, right? Virus infects a cell, amplifies, bursts open the cell. So the virus spreads and you kind of fight it off eventually as your immune system mounts. Lysogenic viruses. This is There's also a lysogenic cycle. So all viruses do a lytic phase at some point for the most part. Um, so like the, the common cold and influenza, like those, those are purely lytic viruses. There are some viruses that can switch to a lysogenic cycle. So they also have a lytic phase, but they have a lysogenic cycle as well. And these are sneaky. Like uh, it's like super interesting how these things work. So the virus will infect your cells, just like before, somehow it'll get across the membrane. How that happens depends on the virus and depends on the methodology and the however the virus is packaged, but it gets into your cells. And rather than and rather than like doing the lytic thing and kind of spreading through there, uh, lysogenic viruses have a longer vision. Like they're like planning, like how do I stick around for a long time? So what they do is they take their viral DNA and they insert that into your DNA. And so now your DNA has the genetic code for a virus stuck inside it. And then that cell, like if that's a skin cell or something, that cell that is now infected with the virus is going to replicate because your cells naturally replicate. Like my skin cells are constantly dividing. And so if I got a viral infection in one of those, 
or like the, this, like my lip cells or my cheek or my skin or my, my liver, like these different cells obviously like replicate now, like, even though the virus just infected one cell now, because that cell is amplifying, it's, it's spreading throughout there. And because it's just waiting dormant, hiding in your cells, very often what it does is it waits until it sees an opportunity, right? It waits until like the immune system is weak or you've got an infection, some other infection and your body's busy fighting that. And you're like, the virus is like, now is when we attack. <laughs> so it can switch to the lytic phase. And now all of a sudden can do this stuff where it's replicating and, and kicking out stuff. And then as your immune system starts to fight back and kill all the viruses that are spreading out, the virus can switch back into a lysogenic phase. So it goes back into hiding and then just waits maybe as much as like a year or 10 years or 50 years until your immune system is weakened again and then it attacks again. And it's like a super interesting, very long phase thing. Um, and understanding this helps us understand a lot of different, like very interesting diseases. Um, so I'm super excited to talk about this. Also, just to point out like, like whoever you are listening to this, this, this has happened in you. You have somewhere in your body, viral DNA hidden in your DNA. And this is something that happens like, like with tons of different viruses. Um, and so I think I remember learning in med school that by the time someone got to 20, um, generally they've got at least 35 or 40 viruses hiding in their DNA somewhere. And it's just like kind of a weird, scary thing overall to realize that your DNA is infected and you have, virus. <laughs> I feel like everyone's going to like start to panic now. Um, now a lot of these viruses don't really do much, um, when they're in their lysogenic phase and some may just stay in the lysogenic phase for your entire life and never kick it into active infection form, but understanding the difference between this lytic phase and the lysogenic phase. Um, and like I said, not all viruses do a lysogenic, just the more complex, more interesting ones do. Um, and, uh, it's just kind of an interesting thing overall. Yeah. So this would not be our podcast if we didn't tie it in with, <laughs> with what you guys will be seeing in the future, what you're experiencing now. Um, so there are actually a couple of really interesting viruses that, that have this lysogenic phase. Um, so the first one is the, um, the varicella zoster uh, virus. And so this is known a lot just for chickenpox. Right. So we have the, the Zoster vaccine. We are able to vaccinate children against getting chicken pox. Um, just a little quick information on chicken pox. So the virus hides for about or it, it takes about two weeks for you to start feeling symptoms. Um, and it's pretty self-limiting. So it, you know, goes away on on its own. Uh, we don't really do a whole lot other than manage the symptoms of, of chicken pox. If someone is immunocompromised, right. If they're going to have a hard time, like, you know, uh, doing what you described, Phil, which is just fighting off that virus, then we can give them an antiviral, but we generally just let it do its thing. Um, yeah. now that's, that's the active version, right? So that's it. Like when, lytic phase, right? Yes. Like in this like initial <laughs> infection, it's going active and fighting. And that's where you have like the lesions all over your skin from all the blisters that form. Yeah. So after this, the virus actually hides. So it hides and it will remain dormant for years, right? So normally when people get the chicken pox, it's usually, you know, toddler age, right? The version that 
is, that occurs when this virus gets reactivated is called shingles. So many of you have probably heard of shingles at some point, um, and you might say, well, that's associated with the elderly. Yes, <laughs> this virus does a very good job at hiding for years. <laughs> um, you know, you think about the elderly, think about immunocompromised uh, patients and individuals, they're not going to do as great of a job at containing this virus, right, while it's in, in this um, lysogenic phase. But then something happens and the virus, you know, season opportunities, like I'm going to do something. I'm going to cause some trouble. (laughs) So it's very good at causing trouble. So what will actually happen is that the virus will travel down your sensory nerves and you'll actually first end up, even before you get another rash, you might end up with pain. Um, And so it's, it's basically infecting these nerves traveling down in pretty, in pretty easy to identify patterns um, just on different parts of the body. It'll travel in, in an area where you expect it to. Um, that's why when someone comes in with chest pain, we actually still just, you still got to check their skin, make sure that it's not something as simple as a, as a rash and a virus, you know, before you start sending them to the, to the yeah. cat lab and having, um, you know, procedures on, on their heart perform. Um, but basically this, this virus does a really good job at hiding. Um, I, I feel like this is like such a like extreme example of, oh, I had this virus when I was five and th- I have round two of fighting this virus when I'm 85, right? Yeah. 80 years pass. And then the virus pounces again as mm-hmm. you get really old and your immune system starts to get a little sucky. Um, and it's like, okay, now I see my window, my opportunity to attack again. Yeah. So, just super interesting. This idea of like 80 years can pass by and then it fights back. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, right, this is this is a, a population that is that when they're getting infected, their immune system already is, needs a little help. So in this case, you can actually give them antivirals pretty early on and, and it'll shorten the course. Um, so usually within the first three days is when you you would give it again. This is not information that you will be tested on, but we think it's fun. We think it's interesting and mm-hmm. uh, hopefully it keeps you motivated. Um, now, this isn't the only virus that will stick around and cause trouble every so often. Right. So something that you might actually have something that you probably have (laughs) like not even might but you probably have it yeah it's herpes so current estimates are that um in the u.s anywhere from 50 to 80 percent of the population has the herpes simplex virus uh version one internationally right it's actually closer just a a better estimate would be 70 percent of the human population has mm-hmm. herpes simplex virus one, HSV one. So what does this virus do, right? Some of you may be familiar and say, okay, I, I, you know, I know about herpes. Others may say, I don't really know why, what is this virus that is hiding out in my body? Um, so this is a virus that calls what's, what's known as cold sores. Um, and so what you'll see is that people might develop small ulcers on their lips, really painful. Um, and it's just the virus being reactivated. So it'll hide out when you're stressed, when you are sick, when you have other things going on and your immune system is saying, I need help. The virus shows up, does its thing again. Um, so what's really, what I personally find really interesting is that before the actual cold sore shows up, people can have this kind of prodrome where they'll get some tingling, some uh, pain, just a little bit of burning, and then it shows up, which is really interesting. You you can tell the virus is is waking up, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there, you know, they're like topical um, antivirals and whatnot to to shorten the course, but it can also cause also there, this family of the herpes virus can cause 
so many different types of illnesses. It can cause um, problems with the eyes. It can cause problems with the throat. It can cause different types of cancers even. Mm -hmm. And so that has a lot of implications for how we address not just when someone has a virus, but also even their exposure. Yeah. This, this idea of like, there's definitely something there with like the, like, like protecting against cancer by fighting viruses. But I do want to just like reiterate, we're talking about herpes, herpes simplex one. There are lots of types of herpes. You have, there are tons of types like HSV one, 70% of people in the world under current estimates have HSV one. There are other types of herpes. Like we're not counting those. We're just looking at this one type of herpes. And I don't know how many types of herpes there are, but I think it might be like a dozen or there's a, there's like tons and tons. Yeah. It might be. Yeah. So there's lots and lots of them. The the two most common types that people hear about are herpes simplex one and herpes simplex two. Um, Generally, we consider herpes simplex one to be the like the oral herpes and HSV two herpes simplex virus or two um, to be the downstairs herpes. So there's upstairs and downstairs herpes. There actually can be some like kind of like crossing over like you can get HSV orally and I think you can get or HSV two orally and you can get HSV one downstairs also, but it's just less common. Um, and so I think it's just really interesting to realize that, like, if you're listening to this, you almost assuredly have some <laughs> type of herpes, <laughs> um, which is like a little bit weird and like sad. There are like 70% of people have HSV one, which causes, like you said, the cold sores, um, overall. And like, there are some people who have HSV one, but it never switches to a lytic phase. So you might have HSV one and it's just stuck in the lysogenic phase and it's never attacking. Um, and so there's a good chunk of people out there who are like, well, I don't have HSV one. Well, like you probably do. Um, it's just not ever switching to that lytic phase, that active infection phase. Um, I think that that's kind of like interesting overall, like the cold sore. You, you might also hear some people call it a fever blister um, because you see it when you get a cold or when you get a fever um, because your immune system is distracted and that's when it wants to pounce. But you also see this a ton when student when people are stressed. Um, I feel like just in the student population, probably the amount of cold sores goes up a ton in like final season just because students are stressed <laughs> overall. Um but talking about this, like this idea, like there's something interesting because the, this like viral DNA gets injected into your DNA, like your DNA gets cut and opened and this DNA gets incorporated into this. That is dangerous because what if like the place where your DNA got cut and this got injected into that, what if that place where it got cut was the middle of like P53? which is a gene and a protein that you need to know is a, a tumor suppressor. And so if that gene is where your DNA got cut and then this, the herpes virus or whatever virus that's a lysogenic gets injected into that area, then you are now more likely to get cancer because you just mutated one of your tumor suppressor genes by cutting it and like breaking it apart. And so this is why some of these lysogenic viruses can make it more likely for you to get cancer. Um, People who have uh, 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 herpes, oral herpes, are actually more likely to get mouth and throat cancer than people who don't. Um, but also, there is a um, the human papillomavirus, 
otherwise known as HPV. Um, once again, there's a couple different versions of it, but it can, um, like that virus is a lysogenic virus. And so it often gets incorporated into um, cells and the cervix. And so this is HPV is a sexually transmitted virus. And um, this is where actually the HPV vaccine comes in. To be honest, HPV, like the virus itself, it's not that big of an issue, right? It doesn't really cause a lot of, like the symptoms of the disease are not something that's super scary or awful, but the fact that it incorporates itself into your DNA and changes your DNA as it goes into that lysogenic cycle means it's likely to cause cancer. That cancer is, I would say, not necessarily a symptom of HPV, the virus. It's just a symptom of that virus got injected into your DNA. So it doesn't matter what's going on with the virus. Any virus that gets injected into your DNA could cause cancer. But this is one, like the cervix, like it's hard for people to <laughs> observe that. Like if you get a weird like mole on your skin or weird something, like you tend to notice that on your cervix, not quite so much. And so a lot of times cervical cancer is not caught early enough to like fight back um, very effectively. And so this is where the HPV vaccine, which is the, the only vaccine that is purely designed to like an anti-cancer thing. This is meant to fight the human papillomavirus and stop it from getting into your DNA in your cervix um, if you have one. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So, um, this is actually the, the, like you said, the only vaccine that we know prevents cancer. Um, and this is also, you know, for anyone listening, <laughs> um, this is why, you know, people who, like you said, have a cervix, um, do routine pap smears. Right. Mm -hmm. And just a fun fact, there are actually really only two types of, of cancers that we really think of as being able to remove them before they become cancer. And that's actually cervical cancer. I'm thinking about the colorectals, like if you remove a polyp before it becomes cancer. So just, just a fun fact. Um, really also a quick thought. So sometimes people confuse uh, cold sores or fever blisters with canker sores, which are different. So just keep that in mind. Not that, you know, it's going to be tested on the MCAT, but just for life. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that someone can't have both. <laughs> right. So, right. you know, if you like spicy food and you happen to get sick, you might be unlucky enough to have them both. Right. Right. Um, this idea of like the lysogenic viruses kind of injecting stuff into your DNA is, is actually something a lot of scientists like looked at this and like, wait a minute, like what if like, you know, because if, if this lysogenic virus takes this like DNA and injects it into your genes, maybe we can use that because there are certain people who have diseases, right? Like people who have cystic fibrosis. They have a mutated version of a chloride transporter. And so if we could somehow introduce this gene, like if I had like a normal chloride transporter and I injected that into your DNA, via the same machinery that injects like virus stuff into your DNA, then all of a sudden the people who have cystic fibrosis would be cured because you could introduce this gene into your genes and like add it to this. Um, the problem with this is the same thing that kind of happened with HSV, or I'm sorry, HPV, which is that like when you cut DNA and like, it turns out that this, the lysogenic stuff is not super specific on where it cuts. And so there's a chance that it could go in and cut 
like really important proteins <laughs> and inject like, oh, now you've got the good chloride receptor, but we also broke something. And like that can cause cancer. Like it, if this is like a really non-specific way to like cut and insert into different places. Um, and so this was one of the ideas behind gene therapy, especially at the beginning. We used HIV is also goes into this where it injects DNA into your cells. Um, and so a lot of the machinery for HIV is used or was used for studying like gene therapies of introducing genes to stuff. I think at this point, we've kind of decided that it's really hard or difficult to make that work um, in a way that is very effective. But um, CRISPR is the relatively new version of understanding how we can cut and insert stuff into DNA. And it's really specific. CRISPR is, I think there's a lot of really cool things going on with CRISPR that you could see passages about in the future. Um, and you may need to know this as a physician where it's a way to cut at very specific places. And so in theory, like now I don't have to worry if I'm using CRISPR, I don't have to worry about cutting in the middle of P53 or in the middle of glucokinase or hexokinase. I can cut in like a really specific place where I know there's nothing important and insert your gene into that that we need. And so there's some really interesting applications and like uses of this virus stuff. I think there's because of the way viruses work and they have these interesting machines like reverse transcriptase, which scientists use all the time. Um, and also this idea of the stuff with CRISPR, which comes from viruses, as well as like the other way that we like insert genes in lysogenic cycles. That's also super interesting from just a pure big science perspective. And I think that there's a lot of interesting implications and applications of this um, overall. Absolutely. Um I also want to be really clear about something. So we've been saying this a little loosely of these viruses causing cancer. So breaking one thing won't necessarily mean yes. that you get cancer, 100%. right? So it'll, it'll cause a predisposition towards cancer. Uh, but if you think about it, the body has a lot of redundancies in place. It's really good at, okay, if something goes a little awry, I can, you know, I have some backup plans. Um, so we're saying this like this, just because, you know, it's, it's more colloquial. Um, but we do want you guys to understand that because you do have to, you know, have some understanding of, of how cancer works and where things can go wrong for the MCAT. Um, so, you know, you do need to know TP53, right? Just keep in mind that there are there are multiple ways that, you know, cancer can, can yeah. come about lots of different genes. Um, and it won't always just be one hit, right. You can have that two hit hypothesis, but that is not the, right. <laughs> the point of this, this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. The, I do think it is important to like, like you said, generally cancer is a, um, like a cascade of multiple mutations that lead to cancer. And so it, it's never just like one thing, one point mutation causing cancer overall. Um, but anything that increases those mutations will increase the rate of cancer, just generally speaking. Um, that's a good thing to point out. Cause I feel like a lot of people, we may have just like really scared them. Like, listen, you have herpes. Also it causes cancer and like, you're going to get <laughs> like, no, that's not what we're saying. Yeah. You, you probably do have herpes, which is, which is like, oh, I kind of don't like saying that, but like odds are probably. Yeah. Um, now whether or not that causes any symptoms, whether or not that causes anything at all, like that may, you have may, you may have no effects over your entire lifetime. If it never switches out of that lysogenic, that waiting phase. Um, but I, I do also want to introduce one other thing. Um, I feel like, I feel like it's really interesting as I, like you're thinking about like the, the clinical applications and I go like pure science stuff of like gene therapies and like how these would work. But I also think that understanding these lysogenic viruses, this is also one of the strongest pieces of evidence for evolution. 
Um, and the idea there is that if we, like there are, we, we have some DNA inside of our cells that we know comes from viruses because we have sequenced viral genomes and we've sequenced like different bacterial genomes. And so there are genes in our cells that come from like other sources that somehow got incorporated into our genome, probably through the way these viruses do. Now, what's interesting is you can trace those back. Um, and so there are a couple of um, viral uh, genes that are really specific and in the same places on the genomes between us and like chimpanzees. And so we, we have like the same viral gene in the same exact place in the same genes. And like that seems like there's something relation, something happened where some organism got of this virus injected into its genome. And then that organism like had a bunch of children and it procreated and like that, like separated at some point into um, into apes, and then that separated in different types of apes, including humans. Um, and so this is just kind of an interesting, um, an interesting thing to kind of like see there. It's like, there's also some implications here and like the, like the uh, implied evidence uh, for evolution. Got to be really careful because um, ev like evolution is not like absolutely proven that like, you know, humans and uh, chimpanzees come from a common ancestor, but there's some very strong pieces of evidence, including the fact that we share viral genomes um, in specific places in, in in our genes. I think the one thing that always sticks with me, not, not entirely related to this, but just how much uh, genetic sequence we share with bananas. I don't know why that has always uh -huh. stuck with me, um, but anytime someone brings this up, that's kind of what comes to mind. Um, but yeah, so Taking a step back, we've we've talked a little bit about viruses today. Um, there's something else that is curious that we thought it might be fun to bring up. And these are prions. So if you think about it, right, we know that viruses are not these living organisms, but they are capable of wrecking havoc on the human body. They are not the only non-organism able of wrecking havoc on the human body. So these prions are actually proteins. Um, and so these, these proteins, remember, they're not living, are capable of wrecking havoc. Phil, why don't you walk us through yeah. what exactly they are? I love prions because they're so <laughs> weird, kind of like how these things, how these things work. Um, so it is, so most of the time, I think most prion diseases that we know of are a specific protein called PRP. Um, and this protein, um, we think it's a chaperone protein. And so chaperone proteins help fold other proteins. Now there is a way that this, this prion can get misfolded. And so it get, the, 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 the protein itself is folded in an incorrect way. And then when it tries to fold other proteins, it folds them wrong. And so the, the, the interesting thing though, is that if this PRP is folded wrong, and there's a new PRP protein being made and it helps trying to fold that, it's going to fold that one wrong as well. And so now we got two of these like weird misfolded proteins and they're going to misfold other proteins, including other PRP proteins. And so they're going to get misfolded. And so it's this one just protein that is folded incorrectly and that causes this cascade, which then can kill the cell and spread to other cells and kill that cell and spread to other cells and kill that cell because all your proteins are being folded improperly. Um, 
this is a really weird thing because like this is not a bacteria this is not like this is not a virus right this is not some alien organism it's it's your protein that you have normally it just got folded wrong and this um this is where mad cow disease comes from um so in mad cow disease um the turns out cows have this same protein um and this protein when it folds incorrectly will misfold other proteins and this can like spread throughout a cow the problem is um especially in uh this happened a lot in europe actually um and like what happens when a cow gets butchered is you take all the meat and then you take everything left over and you grind that into bone meal and then that bone meal, and this is kind of gross, gets fed to other cows and like as a food supplement um, for other cows. And so if we have one cow who has this prion and that spreads throughout all everything else, and then that cow gets ground up and fed to other cows and that protein starts to infect those cows. And then that kind of like keeps spreading throughout this. Um, now, all of a sudden, all of your cows have this misfolded protein. Now, if you were to ingest that, um, like let's say that the butcher did not do a good job being clean. And so one other thing that's interesting about this PRP protein is we really only see it in the brain. And so all prion diseases up till now that have been identified are like uh, cause encephalopathies or like problems with the encephalon or like the brain region kind of overall. And so if this cow when it is butchered like a lot of times they shoot the cow in the head if somehow some of that brain matter ends up in the hamburger and then you eat the hamburger you now have this misfolded protein and it will misfold the proteins in your brain and you will die from this because you will have this like cascading cell death it's like a really like weird, scary thing trying to figure out. And one of the, one, like trying to figure out what was causing this caused a ton of issues because like we didn't know prion diseases existed when the, this mad cow disease was occurring. And so like it was like just people are dying and everyone's trying to figure out like, is it a virus? Is it bacteria? Kind of like what's happening and it's only affecting the people who eat hamburger. And it's also something really interesting is that that misfolded protein may take a decade right? It may take, it may take like a couple of years. It may take up to a decade in order to actually start to cause symptoms because it takes a while for the number of those misfolded proteins to build up to a, a level that is actually like dangerous and fatal. And so this made it very hard to figure out like what was causing this disease because we'd never, we'd never heard of a disease caused by a misfolded protein. Um, there was a guy, his name was Stanley Prusiner, who figured this out. And he's like one of, in my mind, he's like, that's like the coolest thing is to be able to figure this out. Um, I think he won. I, I know he won the, um, the Nobel prize in medicine for figuring out that, Oh, diseases can be caused by misfolded proteins. Um, the thing with this is we can't really treat it because like, it's not a virus. It's not bacteria. It's your protein that needs to be there. You need this protein in order to survive. So how do you fight the fact that you, one of your proteins is misfolded, right? There's not like an antibiotic for this. There's not like, like therapies for this. And so the main way to deal with this is to prevent is like preventative is like prevent transmission. Um, so since mad cow disease, um, was, 
was pretty um, like uh, pretty big deal happening in Europe. There have been cases like here and there in, um, in um, North America as well, but because now we know what causes them, and now we know that like proper butchering can avoid this. Um, like the like the the number of people who are dying from this disease has like fallen off a very sharp cliff because now we know what's causing it, and now we know how to avoid spreading it. And so super interesting prion diseases overall, I feel like it's just such a strange, weird thing and kind of like how they work and like the big picture of medicine overall. Yeah. So on this topic of mad cow disease, uh, anyone who has listened to this podcast for any amount of time knows that I like watching some TV shows while I'm, while I'm having lunch or dinner. And actually I think yesterday I was watching an episode of leverage. I don't know if you know the show. Um, nope. Oh, okay. It's so good. If you, if you get a chance, that's your homework. <laughs> okay. Um, but they were actually, it was an episode where they were trying to, you know, pull off a con, um, in, in the federal government. And so they were going through and they were trying to move, you know, move money across different, um, like just for different purposes. And one of the characters was like, this is so frustrating. Like there's all this money for the study of mad cow disease, but no one studies mad cow disease. Um, so I had completely forgotten about that until we were talking about it just now. Um, but yeah, so with mad cow disease, the, the interesting thing is that with mad cow disease, you're getting these prions from an external source, right? An exogenous source as, as people. Uh, and so that's not the only way that these prion diseases come about. Actually, the majority of the cases that we see are sporadic, meaning that they are not from, you know, eating, eating, uh, hamburger meat, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. So another version of, of this essentially is, um, Kreutzfeldt Jakob disease. And so, like I said, a lot of this is, is sporadic. Um, you can get it from, you know, sporadically, but you can also get it from interacting with, you know, other people who might have it, namely brain matter. And what's kind of crazy is that we, we're not great at knowing exactly, like officially diagnosing it. So what we'll do is we'll take, you know, some of your, your cerebrospinal fluid, that fluid that bathes your central nervous system, and we'll look for evidence of these proteins. And so, you know, we'll, we'll have a pretty good idea. Hey, this is what's going on the only way to truly like absolutely diagnose it is on autopsy autopsy. Mm -hmm. Um, like Phil, you mentioned it's fatal. We don't have, we don't have a way to treat this. We don't. Um, and so it's, it's very, it's a very awful diagnosis to get, um, a lot of the, just thinking about what might happen, right. If you think about where, you know, where you said that this is taking place, right? The brain, um, these prions can, when they're misfolded, they can spread, they can form these plaques, they can cause, um, neuronal death. And so think about parts of the brain that would be affected. And one of the main ways that, um, that it affects the, the person is actually just by like balance, being able to walk, um, because it's causing cerebellar problems. You should know what the cerebellum does on test day. <laughs> you do, you do have to have some idea about the different parts of the, the brain are responsible for. Um, but it can also cause things like dementia and visual hallucinations. Uh, people, when, when they get startled, their muscles might twitch and contract. Um, so it's one of those, it's one of those things where it's, it's maddening how no pun intended, goodness. Um, uh, <laughs> uh. Um, it's, it's kind of maddening, like what it's capable of doing and the havoc that it's capable of wrecking when it's not even alive, when yeah. it's a protein. Um, so, you know, it's, 
it's one of those things that you don't want to miss it when, if, you know, if you ever come across it, but prevention is really, is really the best way to, to avoid it. There are also some instances, if anyone is curious and looking this up, there are some familial uh, versions. And so if anyone is curious, um, like, like Phil and I were, when we were, when we were looking things up uh, and taking a peek, there's so much, so many interesting things that you could look up. Again, you will not be expected to know Chris Pellyhock Club disease or the, you know, the specifics of mad cow disease on test day. It's, it's important to think about, you might get a passage on one of these, yeah. but you don't need to know the exact protein or anything like that on, on test yeah. day. I do think like you don't need to know like the tr- like treatment, which doesn't exist or like the mm-hmm. diagnostic criteria or things like that. But you do need to know that those are prion diseases. Like yes. you need to recognize mad cow, Creutzfeldt, Jakob. Those are both it's it's spelled like Jacob, but for some reason it's Jakob. I think it's just mm-hmm. then however they pronounce their name, the guy that that um, named it. Um but there are like other ones that I think you're probably less likely to get tested on, but just like through the process of being like, it's an interesting thing. Um, the disease Kuru was really only seen in cannibals. Um, and that like, is just kind of the same thing as what was going on with cows, but instead of cows eating cows, it's people eating people. And so if you eat brain matter that has this misfolded protein, you're going to get it. And so it's kind of an interesting form there. As you did mention, there is a familial or genetic component. There are certain there's a certain mutation that makes the protein more likely to misfold. Um, and this is a, like kind of an interesting thing. This is actually related to my, I don't know if it's right to say my favorite disease of all time, or at least one of the most interesting disease <laughs> of all time. Um, that like, just, it's like a super interesting disease. And that is um, fatal familial insomnia, which um, this, like this misfolding can cause issues with, um, sleep. And so just as this occurs and as, as this occurs in a, in a, in a person, all of a sudden they can't sleep anymore. Generally at that point, it's like three to six months before they're dead. And they're like, um, it's a fatal thing. That's why it's called fatal familial insomnia. So not only is it fatal, but it's also genetic. So if you don't have somebody who's died from this in your family, then you probably don't have it. Like you all, like 99.99999% don't have it in that case. So like, that's one of those things that I feel like, I don't know about you, um, as I, but like in med school, I'd learn about a disease and I'm like, I think I have this disease. And I'm like, like constantly, like, I can't sleep. I'm probably going to, I'm probably dying from fatal familial insomnia. Like, Nope, no, I'm just, just, just not sleeping too much caffeine today. Um, and so, uh, there are a lot of like really interesting diseases here and like prions specifically are like just a super interesting class of diseases. Um, but it's, it's pretty uncommon, um, as like a disease causing vector, um, bacteria and viruses and fungi are all parasites are all way more common than prion diseases, but the MCAT has been known to test students on prion diseases. And that's why we're talking about it here because I actually know that there's a lot of students that I've interacted with who have never heard of this. And the MCAT will expect you to know what prion diseases are, what causes them, and specifically, mad cow and Creutzfeldt-Jakob are examples of these. 